Welcome to Awesome Movie Year, the podcast where we take a look back at an awesome year for movies, which is every year. My name is Josh Bell, film critic and writer, and I'm joined by my co-host. I'm Jason Harris, filmmaker, comedian, and greetings from Reno, where I am getting a quickie podcast divorce from Josh for making me sit through this movie. (laughs) (laughs) You're going to spend six weeks in Reno just so you don't have to discuss this movie with me. I usually spend four days there every year for the Cordillera Film Festival, so six weeks is a extended version. But as you know, this movie uh, feels like six weeks to watch. <laughs> well, I disagree. I think this is a very uh, zippy, fast-paced uh, movie a, that goes a by A zippy quickly. two hours and 13 minutes. Yeah, there. I mean, it's not a short movie, but I feel like it moves quickly for the most part, uh, other than uh, there's a interlude in the film in the middle that I'm sure we'll talk about that is maybe not so fast-paced. But the rest of it, all the dialogue and the character interactions. Anyway. Jason is uh, ready to go to tear this movie apart. But what is that movie? We are here in our season on the films of 1939. And this is my pick, which is The Women from director George Cukor, based on the hit 1936 Broadway play by Claire Booth, which ran for 600 plus performances on Broadway. And the film version was written by Anita Luce and Jane Murfin. Starring Norma Shearer, Rosalind Russell, Joan Crawford, Paulette Goddard, Mary Bolin, Joan Fontaine, and a massive cast, all of women, more than 130 speaking parts in this film. And just as in the play, only women in this film. We never see, they talk about the male characters a lot, you know, which could be uh, potentially one of the criticisms of this film. And in fact, the tagline, the advertising tagline for the film, I don't know about the play. But for the film, the tagline says it's all about men. And certainly that is what they focus on. But those male characters are always off screen. Only women, including even the animals, the pets that they have, they made sure to get only female animals to appear in this film. But George Kukar, the director, is a man. He is. He is. Although at least there's female screenwriters. So uh, at this time in Hollywood, I don't know if there were any working female directors, but basically between Dorothy Arzner and Ida Lupino, I'm not sure if within the studio system there were any female directors. And you mentioned Anita Luce. She's the first female screenwriter in Hollywood. We mentioned her when we did Gentlemen Prefer Blondes, which she also wrote, Josh. Yeah, that she wrote up the, the play, the source material for that as well. So yeah, screenwriters, I feel like it was much more common for there to be female screenwriters at this time, but basically no women who are directors. So uh, I think George Cukor does an excellent job with this, but obviously Jason's going to disagree with dude, me about everything here. Uh, let think. me just say, obviously, Cukor is a legend. I love the Philadelphia story. So like, let's chill out here on that. On that. <laughs> I mean, he's, he, you know, he's one best director. He's been nominated for four or five times. But this one... Uh, yeah, well, I think we can agree there. George Cukor is a legend and has made many great films. I think this is one of them. So this movie, again, was based on a very, very popular play. It was itself a success at the box office, although not as huge a success uh, as it could have been, perhaps grossing $2.27 million. on its budget of $1.68 million. As always in this season, these are kind of estimated numbers and may include the re-release from 1947 where it picked up uh, some extra money as well during that time. But generally uh, considered a success, and uh, not by Jason, but uh, by many other people, and and by critics too. Critics were generally 
very positive about this film. And I figured to go with the theme, we might as well get all women critics here to quote uh, in this episode. And I know that we've been having maybe a shortage of old timey newspaper speak in the the reviews, which I was excited for for this season. But I feel like we're going to maybe make up for it here with the reviews of the women. So that's exciting. I just um, was excited that there was a food dish in this film that I had never heard of. Pancakes Barbara. Yeah. Did you look that up? Was that like, what was the egg thing that we just talked about? Oh, oh yeah. Eggs kibby. Right. Or exactly. whatever. Is it like so, that? Uh, it looks like it's like a fat crepe. And then you put, uh, you put whipped cream and uh, hot chocolate sauce on. Hot, well, hot, you know, that sounds chocolate. healthy. I'm, a, I'm yeah. all for it. <laughs> Some Not ice cream, bad. some blanched walnuts, uh, pancakes, Barbara. Yeah, is that served anywhere anymore, or is it? Does it go out of style after the 1930s? Well, I've never heard of it, so I don't. I don't think it's in style because I would have known that. But, mm, yeah, you, know, you are pretty so. knowledgeable about those things. Yeah, so. and uh, you? You know, yeah, I need pancakes, Barbara. It'd have to be a dessert. I wonder if you could do like a savory version of it. You know, maybe put some bacon on there and two eggs or something. And yeah, some, would it, uh, would it pair with syrup. the eggs kibby? Do you think, or those uh, don't go together? They're both breakfasty, well, right? It's just going to be carbs on carbs. Cause eggs kibby is basically toads in a hole, right? So you're putting, I mean, what if you combine them and you cut the hole in the pancake, the crepe, and you did pancakes, Barbara kibby. I don't know. Mm. I don't know. But uh, I think you should give it a try and report back when we get to the epilogue. We're going to get you a whole menu of 1930s food to eat by the time we get to the end of this season. And you can report on your meal at the end. I'm all for that. Yeah. So critic wise, uh, generally, especially these female critics were very positive about it. Mildred Martin in the Philadelphia Inquirer said, Miss Booth's poisonous portrait of her sex has had neither its claws trimmed nor its venom removed in MGM's lavish screen translation. In fact, the film is as amusingly libelous of the girls as ever, though its language has been to some extent fumigated, and though a certain slapstick inclination on the part of players and director George Cukor serves to soften the sting. Uh, no claws, no venom. <laughs> no? I mean, it definitely... I was trying to find... What exactly were the differences between the stage version and this version? And it it doesn't seem like there were like structural changes per se. And I wondered if the ending, which is definitely the 1930s sexist ending, uh, had been mandated by like the production code. But it seems like that's actually from the source material. And it's mainly just certain words and references like, you know, virgin or whore or things like that, that they could say on stage that they can't say in the movies. So, so can it be sexist if it was written by a woman and performed by all women? Of course it can. Absolutely. You think there are not women who uh, buy into the uh, sexism? I'm just saying like, you know, uh, this is one of my problems with the movie. Like what, what is the message I'm supposed to take away from this? thing? Yeah. I mean, and I think that's fair. Like of all the potential criticisms here, like, the idea of the the very sexist tone of it, I think, is something that I can be on board with in terms of criticizing the film, that it does kind of undermine the idea of this movie as a celebration of women when the message, at least as far as our main character played by Norma Shearer goes, is that women should subvert themselves to their husbands and and overlook extramarital affairs and just forgive and move on and yeah i'm 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 with you on that point 
I mean, I saw Dave's letterbox where he referred to it as the good old days. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we know. Dave, the, the regressive uh, mm -hmm. <laughs> patriarch over there, right? Uh, oh, yeah. uh, this is one of my main criticisms of it. I was like, I, I mean, you know, we go on this long journey with this character only for her to pretty much end up where she started. Like, oh, should I divorce him? No, I love my husband. He can go bang someone else and I'll be here for him. I mean, I don't necessarily approve of where she ends up. But I think the point of the journey, the point of the film is that she has to kind of go through all these experiences to understand that or to come to a more uh, complex or fuller understanding of how her marriage could or should work. And I don't think it was complex at all. I think we've seen much better stories of um, adultery and couples trying to put the pieces back together, Dave. Mm -hmm. <laughs> oh, right. Pieces. Got it. Mm -hmm. That's where you're going yeah. with that. Yeah. So uh, another uh, positive review here, uh, May Tanay, get it, Ooh. is uh, the, the pseudonym of a number of female film critics over the course of nearly 30 years at the, or I think actually maybe closer to 50 years even at the Chicago Tribune. So whoever this was in 1939, May Tanay said, this picture screened from the naughty stage play was not an easy one to adapt objectionalities have been deleted without inducing anemia. The production snaps and sparkles and maintains remarkable coherency considering the mass of incoordinate material introduced. Dialogue is rare without being raw, as it was in the play. The acting is slick, every bit of it. Rosalind Russell, I would say, contributes the outstanding performance. Director George Cukor has certainly learned about women from somebody, for his hand on the reins was a sure and cajoling one. As one woman to another, don't miss the women, girls, but better leave Papa at home. Good thing that uh, he learned about women from somebody, Josh. Yeah, exactly. Well, I think this is, an, I, you know, elsewhere in the, the piece, the review, she talks about those screenwriters, how one of the reasons that she thinks it worked is because they assigned this to these female screenwriters. Oh. So she's kind of contrasting him there. I mean, this is the second allusion to this naughty play. What is so naughty about the play? Well, I mean, you have to remember that it's 1939. And I mean, I think one of the things that's naughty about the play is probably that language that had to be toned down for this film. Um, so we don't see that here. But just the idea of these female characters being so catty and sabotaging each other and having affairs and getting divorced, even if Mary ultimately comes around to this sort of wholesome, sexist, place, other characters in the film, supporting characters, are allowed to be a lot messier. And I think that's what they're referring to here, too. Speaking of, uh, of these female screenwriters, did you know that F. Scott Fitzgerald did an early draft of this? Yeah. So, uh, you know, not, not a female screenwriter there, but un unclear how many of his contributions made it here versus our credited writers, Anita Luce and Jane Murfin is the other screenwriter here. Right. I'm a big Rosalind Russell fan. As you know, we've talked about His Girl Friday and my love for it. But um, I feel like um, they all kind of get mishmashed together in this one. Really? You didn't feel like she stood out at all as Sylvia Fowler? I mean, really, the only one who stood out to me was uh, Joan Crawford, and she was the villain. Right. Well, Sylvia is kind of a villain, too. I mean, you could even argue that Sylvia is the bigger villain because she kind of instigates a lot of this. Yeah, no, I think it was uh, I think it was Joan Crawford and the the uh, the countess were the two. Yes. That, uh, 
you know, really the Countess Delage. I think a lot of these, I mean, you know, you saw this before I did this time. I've seen it before, but, you know, talking to you and hearing your complaints, I thought, oh yeah, you know, it's true. There are a lot of characters in this film and maybe I will f- feel like they're not particularly distinctive as I watched it this time. And I, I disagree. I mean, some of the real like tertiary characters who don't do much, maybe don't make a huge impression, but I felt like all of the main characters and even kind of secondary characters had very distinctive personalities and arcs to them. Well, of course you did. It's your pick. Right. Um, well, I mean, as I said, like, it's possible that I would have felt differently about it, you know, watching it this time. That's happened, right? And I hadn't seen it in a while. You picked one movie one time that you hated. Well, I'd never seen it, though, so right. that doesn't count. Um, <laughs> but uh, anyway, I don't... I don't think that there were these definitive lines in these characters, but I do think you hit upon something that, um, because as you know, there's more than 130 speaking roles here. I think some streamlining could have really uh, done this film well. Yeah, I don't agree. I feel like everything in this movie is fantastic. And I mean, I don't want to say essential because like the movie could exist without certain things, but everything in here I thought was enjoyable and valuable to watch this time. Well, it's been a good run, guys. <laughs> <laughs> this is far from the worst of a movie I think that I've recommended or that we have watched where you have uh, disliked it. I'm sure there have been plenty of movies that you've disliked more that I've tried uh, to defend. I mean, I actually was thinking about this. I mean, we'll have to wait till the ratings, but I bet this is going to be the lowest rated personal pick of like the other two. That, you know, like, say if it was my pick and you guys mm. were rating it. Right. Or, you know, I think this is going to be the lowest rating. That I, it's possible. Got. I don't know. I'll have to look. I feel like you've picked a couple things that I've really disliked. Well, yeah, but Dave, Dave usually. Comes yeah, through. Dave, Dave, uh, Dave bumped up the average there. I that's think, what I mean. Sure. With the other two. Yeah, so, yeah. Well, we'll we'll see. We'll get to that. So uh, finally, critic wise, Catherine Howard in the Fort Worth Star Telegram said the play was screamingly funny. And the audience, which was predominantly feminine, laughed and laughed at their own weaknesses and vanities, but secretly squirmed when situations struck too close to home. As one member of the female sex trying to be honest, we'll have to confess that we squirmed, but also admit that we saw many of our sisters in their true life characters. The women is crammed with smart dialogue. The only difficulty is that the audience is in a continuous uproar and you miss numerous wisecracks, many of which will be tossed about for weeks to come. If for no other reason, the movie is worth the price just to see Rosalind Russell and Paulette Goddard engaging in a battle of biting and hair-pulling at a Reno dude ranch. Okay. <laughs> okay, that's, that's, that's Jason's response. He's already given up. I mean, I just don't agree with it. And I mean, you know, this is... Uh, like, for instance, I just rewatched Bean Girls the other day, which is basically an all-female-led uh, film, right? You know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, just think, think, I think there's a, you know, if we were doing a piecing it together, right, this could be a piece for, for Mean Girls. Sure. Yeah, I just think that's a much better version of this subject matter in a, obviously a different setting, but yeah. I just, I didn't connect with this one, Josh. Right, no, I'm getting that. And, and I like Mean Girls, but I definitely think this was, this was better. So, all right, Jason, obviously you had not seen this before, but you're saying you have seen some George Cukor films that you've liked. Yeah. And I mean, you know, all these actresses are legends, right? So, yeah. you know, I went in with an open mind, Josh, and um, it just, it just didn't, uh, sorry, man. 
I apologize, Josh. No, you don't have to apologize for having your own opinion about the movie. I apologize that um, you have made me watch such a terrible film, Josh. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. All right. Dave, had you seen this before? I had not. Um, I also went in with an open mind. I I also, I'd mentioned it in Letterboxd. I I loved the opening credits, um, but then it just didn't hold up to that the whole time. (laughs) Yeah, the opening credits are fun where they show the, the main characters and uh, like an animal that it sort of relates <laughs> to them yeah. in terms of their personalities. Yeah, I mean, I, I, like I, I, I wanted to like that. But again, issues there. One, there's so many of them. It's impossible to keep track right up front, right? Well, then, yeah, because you haven't gotten to know them yet. It's just a lot, like a parade of like faces, but you will get to know them over the course of the movie. Yes, but I also don't think like, oh, Joan Crawford's a panting leopard. I don't really, I didn't really get that one. Uh, the the countess is a monkey, I guess, because she swings from relationship to relationship. Like, I just kind of hyperactive and always, you know, being, uh, I, yeah, jumping around or whatever, I guess. It felt like a lot of work to get any of these things there. Yeah. Okay. So you were, you were, you lost you right from the moment it began, basically, <laughs> is what you're saying. <laughs> I was Before a character even spoke. <laughs> I was intrigued. I was like, oh, cool. I'm intrigued. But then I was like uh, detrigued after that, Josh. Yeah. Okay. I, I see. Well, uh, I had seen this multiple times. Um, this is the third time I've seen this. I watched it I, just at home one time. I think just as like, hey, this is a classic. I should check it out. And I really enjoyed it. And so when they showed it at the TCM Classic Film Festival in 2012, and I was covering that for a uh, no longer existing but great movie website called Not Coming to a Theater Near You. I requested to write about this film. So I wrote a piece on it back in 2012, which is still there, even though that website shut down like 10 years ago. It's well-preserved, which is rare on the internet. So hey. shout out to uh, Rumsey Taylor, who ran that website. Excellent All right, there. Rumsey. Yeah. So, right. So I had seen this and considered it, written about it, analyzed it, whatever in the past, and really liked it, as I said, both of those times, but it has been a while. And I thought, yeah, maybe, you know, given Jason's response, maybe I'll agree. Maybe I won't be as enthused this time, but I really enjoyed it this time, I think just as much. And right from the beginning, like maybe not the opening credits, I'm I'm sort of split between you guys. Like, I think they're kind of cute, but they're not really like a great moment necessarily. And, and I, I'm with you, Jason, it is maybe a bit of a stretch that they decide we have to get an animal for all of these characters. We have to figure one out and how does that really fit? But I mean, from the moment it begins the actual story in that salon with the camera, you know, the long tracking shot of going through the different rooms and the set design, which is so spectacular in this film and all the overlapping dialogue that you get there, I was in it completely from beginning to end this time. So I, I'm sorry that you guys were tortured by it. Uh, yeah, it was it was a rough go for me, Josh. Yeah. Well, do you want to say anything else about the background of this movie? Josh, did you know that Claudette Colbert, Carol Lombard, and Marion Davies almost starred in this film? That would have been Lee fantastic. LaCava. Yeah. Gregory Lee LaCava was again directed at one point. Um, and then my other favorite thing is that since the three leads uh, which, you know, there were all such huge names by then, Josh, right? You had, uh, yeah. Crawford and Shearer and Rosalind Russell. They were all such stars. And uh, in classic Hollywood fashion, uh, they acted as such that Kukar made sure to constantly call them to the set simultaneously 
because if he had called one earlier, then they wouldn't have felt like they were as uh, as big as the other ones. And uh, one time it didn't work and the offended star stayed in her dressing room for a long time. Yeah, I believe that these uh, these Hollywood divas, you know, but it, it, it's appropriate for the subject matter of this film, I feel like, even though that was probably annoying for George Cukor in trying to make the film, but yeah. it fits with the characters. So we'll come back and talk our general thoughts on the women and hear more about why Jason hates it. All right. <laughs> Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year. In this episode of our season on the films of 1939, we're talking about my pick, which is George Cukor's The Women, a movie that I love and that I still love. This is my third time seeing it. And Jason, I think we've already here established that you really dislike this, but I want to ask you, was there something that you did like? Um, I mean, like I said, I thought the Countess was a, a fun character, you know? It's just like, I, in a way, everything was too long, you know, like the dude ranch sequence could have been a little more fun if it was tightened up a little bit. I feel like you had mentioned that opening with that cool camera work, but there were so many people to keep track of right away. It just got tough. Um, and then, I, you know, the some of the confrontations between like Shearer and Crawford or whatever were nice. Um, so look, it's it's yeah, it's just. I think less would have been more here, Josh. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, I mean, I think, obviously, again, as I said, I think everything in here is really good. In terms of that opening, like, it is overwhelming. And you are dropped right into it. And I think you could feel like, oh, wait, what am I supposed to focus on here? But the truth is that most of that is just sort of, like, color. It's just background. It's not until you get into the manicurist gossiping about Mary Haynes and her husband cheating on her that we get to something that we actually need to pay attention to. And by that point, it's clear. I think, you know, the the background noise has faded away. We can focus and we're given enough information about who are these people and what are their relationships to that we can see how the story begins. So I think even if you're a little jarred at the beginning, you can pretty well focus on what's going on fairly soon. Yes. But then, you know, Right, right. So even if I give you that, then it's another barrage of like 12 characters right afterwards and how they interact. So yeah, it, 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 it was just it was just overwhelming. And, um, you know, uh, you know, I even think that, like I said, like, I think everything could have been trimmed and edited, um, you know, so even like the quickie, quirky, fun, fast dialogue, I think got lost a lot of times. Yeah, I mean, I think the dialogue is really like if you did, you know, if you edited this down, you would lose so many witty lines and and great exchanges. And all the performances are so good. I think even in those small, smaller parts and and part of the reason that you can, I feel like, get a handle on those characters where maybe they don't have that many lines or the writing isn't isn't all that distinctive for them is because all the performances down the line in this cast are really good. And you get these these lesser characters and you get a sense of them right away because the performances give you that. Yeah, look, I'm not I'm not knocking any of the acting, you know, but there have been um plenty of movies with uh good actors or, or great casts that just haven't materialized. And I know like you said Josh, this is a uh renowned film. You're not the only one who loves it. Right, and, uh, right. I want to make that clear. I feel like I've picked some movies in the past that are sort of cult e or not universally beloved, but this is not one of them. <laughs> No, it's fine. It's like totally fine. Like I'm yeah. in the minority on this one. But, right. Um, 
But I'm not really in the um, awesome movie year minority because I know Dave didn't like it. And when I saw Dave and Gina at the movies, Gina pulled me aside to tell me how much she did. And I don't even think she sat through the whole thing. Well, right. right. To be fair, Gina didn't watch the whole movie. Yeah, she she <laughs> well, failed. Yeah, but you're saying to be fair, like... Yes, well, is, I would not. I would not, as a critic, give you my assessment of a film if I had not watched all of it. Right, but I think her point was, "Hey, I am so despondent at how terrible I'm feeling watching this movie. How little I'm enjoying it that I will not sub- subjugate <laughs> myself to such matters anymore." Right, and hey, she's not obligated to do that. Of course, she's not on this podcast. She's not a critic. She's just watching for her own enjoyment, and I'm not. I'm not knocking Gina for saying, hey, this movie isn't for me. I'm going to stop watching. I just think that if you're going to give it like if you're going to use that as supporting evidence in your case against the film, you can't go with someone who didn't actually watch the whole movie. Oh, my God, Dave, you're going to let him talk about your wife like that? <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm, if, if I'm, I trying, say, I'm trying to I'm trying to criticize <laughs> you, Jason. Not Gina. <laughs> yeah, but see what I did. I deflected it like I'm one of these uh, gossip columnists. Yeah, from the 1930s. Good job. Good yeah, job. Good job. Somewhere else. <laughs> I I, w- I want to say like I you know I admit I don't know as much classic Hollywood as I should. Um, so I, I'm kind of coming to this from a slightly unique point of view in that all of that overlapping dialogue and all of these characters is kind of going a hundred miles a minute. I had so much trouble figuring out who the main character was because I didn't recognize the actresses. So I think that's also a difficulty for someone like me coming into this. I mean, but I... Let me just say, Josh, it kind of reiterates what I'm saying because there's so many of them. Like, you know, it is tough to, again, keep track of blah, 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 blah. You know, and Mm -hmm. I like ensemble stuff and, you know, Windy Roads, but I think it was too much. And I think, you know, we're talking about Kukor and like I mentioned, uh, Philadelphia's story, right? That to me is a much better iteration of that kind of quick overlapping you know, uh, uh, fun dialogue. I mean, I love the Philadelphia story and I think it's great at that. And I mean, you want to talk about, isn't his girl Friday, Jason, which you love, doesn't that have like a world record for the speed of its dialogue or something like that? Right. I think I'm it not, does. Right. But I'm not knocking that, but that was, um, one female and two men. Right. So it's like, it's much easier if that was three females or three men or whatever iteration, it's three characters versus 78 characters. Right. <laughs> so right. it would, it's just, it's just tough to keep track. And I, I, you know, this is obviously a, I mean, a major style and I don't think there's a better actress than Rosalind Russell for this type of, you know, this type of film. Cause like you just mentioned, uh, his girl Friday. Right. Uh, you know, but, uh, this one just, yeah, I think it's too much. Yeah. I mean, I guess going to that, like, I understand what you're saying, Dave, is that you're not familiar with who you're not going to recognize on site, Norma Shearer or Joan Crawford or Rosalind Russell or any of these people. And I mean, that's fair, especially because Norma Shearer in particular has been sort of lost to time or whatever versus those other two. But I feel like, first of all, in that opening credit scene, which you loved, it yeah. gives you a very clear picture of every one of these people. And she's the first one who's clearly the main character. Well, I remembered all the animals. I just oh, didn't remember so the, the animals yeah. had appeared, right. <laughs> but I also, again, I don't know. I, I, I feel like to me, as soon as they're like, Mary Haynes, blah, 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 like the, the, the manicurist is giving you this gossip. You're like, okay, Mary Haynes is the main character of this film. And then she shows up and she says, I'm Mary Haynes or whatever. Maybe she doesn't say that, but yeah, there are a lot of people surrounding her and it may take a while to figure out who those people are. And there was definitely one character, at least I forget the actress 
but who's like a, she's sort of like an old maid spinster and she's a writer and she shows up in one of those group scenes at the beginning and then she's gone for a really long time and then shows up later. And I was like, who is this again? And, and that's, I understand, but I feel like, you know, if you give this movie 10 minutes, 12 minutes or something, you will really clearly understand who Mary Haynes is and that she's the main character. But we gave it two hours and 13 minutes and he's telling you that it was <laughs> right. Well, but by problem. the end of the movie, Dave, you realized who the main character was. I, I would say so. Yes, I would Josh, hope so. I think the gossip <laughs> columnist you're talking about is an actual gossip columnist, Hedda Hopper, yes. uh, who played Dolly Dupster, I think. And uh, at the height of her fame or kind of, you know, reach as a columnist, 35 million people were reading her columns which is great, but uh, not great, was uh, all the blacklisting she helped do of uh, screenwriters for the, you know, McCarthyism era. Yeah, I mean, the Gossa, Hedda Hopper, and I forget the name now of her, like, primary rival at the time, um, who was uh, another, like, um, you know, the gossip columnist who also, like, they made their careers on destroying people. And so, yeah, they're famous, but you're right. She not only contributed to the blacklist, but even before that, the, the sort of purpose of gossip columns in this era was to like take people down. And, and we see some of that in this movie, right? And these aren't, these characters aren't even meant to be like famous actresses or whatever, but they're, they're Park Avenue socialites. They're well known in the New York social scene, especially during the depression. And that's one thing that I feel like doesn't come across in this movie as much, but this was also kind of a satire of the attitudes of rich women at the time. These women had the luxury of focusing all their energy on like their husband's affairs and, and, you know, gossiping about each other or whatever, because they weren't poor and standing on bread lines or whatever. And that's part of what's going on here too. But, but yeah, th that gossip columnist, even though Hedda Hopper, I'm sure enjoyed doing a cameo as essentially herself, like she is an essential part of the, the machine that like destroys people like Mary Haynes here. Right. Um, I'm going to go back to Joan Crawford, who I think, you know, we've talked about multiple times this season, obviously a legend like that to me. I know she's the bad guy, but that's the most clearly delineated character in the film. And uh, when she gets her comeuppance, I like that she just rolls with it. You know, she kind of feels like, hey, I made my bed. I'm going to lie in it until I find a better bed to lie in. Right. I mean, I totally agree. And I think one of the the sort of counterbalances to the idea of this movie being super sexist in terms of its storyline about Mary Haynes, about Norma Shearer's character, is that both Joan Crawford's character, Crystal Allen, and Rosalind Russell's character, Sylvia Fowler, who are the sort of ostensible villains here, are very easy to root for and very easy to regard as the more feminist sort of people positions within this story. And maybe that wasn't the intent of the filmmakers at the time, but I feel like what they created was something with this wide range of women who, and like you said, that's a great moment at the end where we feel like, ah, Mary Haynes has defeated her, right? Or whatever. And she's just like, yeah, what? Shit happens. I'm going to land on my feet. It's what I do. And you believe it. And that's great. I do, I do. But uh, to defend Dave, which, as you know, not not something I'm a fan of doing. <laughs> You're very uh, reluctant. <laughs> I mean, I could tell you, like you said, I could tell you who Mary Haynes is. I could tell you who Crystal is, her rival. You know, the Rosalind Russell character, I think it's a little lost in there. I think the Countess you recognize, and obviously the kid, little Mary, you recognize. But I couldn't tell you anything about Joan Fontaine, who played Peggy at this point in time, who's a huge star, right? I couldn't tell you who Edith is. 
I couldn't tell you who Miriam is, played by Paulette Goddard. Like all these just kind of ran together. And I was like, wait, you did what? Who are you again? What's going on here? I literally, you know, before we recorded, Josh, because I'm, I always do the research as you mm, know. Of I, uh, I read the summary and I was even confused by the summary of what I watched. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, Edith is another character who kind of shows up in the beginning and then disappears for a while because she's not involved when they take their trip to Reno. And that's where we meet the Countess and that's where we meet Paulette Goddard's character. And then when we kind of come back to New York, then Edith shows up again. So I think that's fair. Um, and she doesn't have much of an arc, but but I feel like uh, Joan Fontaine's character has a, a great arc and her arc like parallels Mary because she too is going to get divorced. She joins Mary on the trip to Reno and then discovers that she's pregnant and she also reconciles with her husband. And it's sort of, you know, it's meant to be this early like sign for Mary that, hey, you know what? She can do it. I This is what I should be doing as well. And I think Paulette Goddard just as a performer makes such an impression when she shows up on the train when, you know, because she doesn't show up in the movie until that's, I don't know, is that halfway through maybe or something like that when they go to Reno? Yeah. And and she is key to like Sylvia's arc because she's the one who is the the catalyst for Sylvia's own divorce. She's having an affair with Sylvia's husband and she's going to marry him. And I, I thought that was a great example too of the movie showing these different paths because even though she's essentially a homewrecker, right? She's taken Sylvia's husband away. She becomes one of Mary's greatest allies and we don't judge her. We're not opposed to her. She's not a villain at all in this film and yet she still has engaged in this extramarital affair. So I, I thought those characters were very clear. Well, that's good. I mean, I, I, I wish I, you know, I didn't get all of that as quickly as you did, clearly, you know. So, I mean, uh, you're explaining to me and I'm like, yeah, I kind of I kind of remember that. You know? Right. So right. It, just, it just it was a lot to keep track of. You know, this this might be a, a stupid thing, but it's true. You know, like, obviously, this is 1939. This is all black and white, except for the Technicolor sequence. Yeah. But I feel like we could have done a better job, you know. Uh, delineating characters via wardrobe, you know, via styles. Um, they didn't. They didn't really, you know, each have their own style. I didn't feel like. Yeah, maybe so. I mean, I feel like Sylvia has this kind of more over the top style than the others, and Mary is often dressed in like pantsuits and stuff, where she's more like practical or whatever. But yeah, I mean, the lack of color means that you can't always tell if these characters are have a signature color or something like that that they're wearing. And I think they are all meant to have this, this sort of high fashion sense because they're all these upscale housewives in this area of society. There's probably a limited range of acceptable fashions for them to be wearing at this time period. Hmm. Let's talk about that Technicolor sequence. Yeah. When you first saw it, I guess it was reinserted into the movie? Yeah, I mean, uh, it's been reinserted for decades you know i mean it was taken out at some point i guess maybe i wonder if that re-release in 1947 included it or not i'm not sure but early like home video releases and maybe when it was shown on tv and things like that took it out but certainly by the time i watched it when it had been released on dvd i mean it was like 2006 or something so it had certainly been added in and i when i watched it again the dvd that i got from the library has the black and white fashion show sequence which is an alternative available on there. And I didn't watch that because the fashion show part, as much as it's like, I appreciate for it, like complete insanity that they included it. It, it goes on a little long. It doesn't add, I mean, look, I think so the costume designer, Adrian, I guess who was a huge deal and yeah. known for his amazing 
you know, work as a designer, which is cool. Um, and, you know, but you're watching this movie and then all of a sudden we're in Technicolor and we're watching this fashion show and it's like, it, I, I don't think it added anything to the movie, did it? Right. No, I mean, there's arguments that are made for how it does add to the movie. And I don't mind watching it. It's so ridiculous that I just find it amusing to watch. And it's definitely of a piece with the kinds of things. I don't know that there's any other movie that stops in the middle for a fashion show, although there may be. Um, But it reminded me a lot of dream ballets, which are a huge thing in musicals in the 1930s and 40s, and I think even into the 50s, where there are these long, wordless sequences. Even if it's a musical where the characters sing, there are these long sequences where it's just sort of like abstract representations of the characters' moods via dance. And some of those go like uh, an American in Paris ends with like an 18 minute dream ballet. It's fucking insane. Um, yeah. And it, it reminded me of that, which was definitely a thing in this era. And you know how I feel about the movies of the 1950s. Not all of them, but you understand. <laughs> right. but, uh, but Josh, you know who agreed with me on this uh, sequence is uh, George Kukar. Yeah. So he didn't like it and wanted out of the movie. Right. And so that's why I wonder if maybe if he had the clout by 1947 to have it taken out for that re-release, I don't know. I don't um, think so. I mean, you know, he was he's a, he was as big a director as there was at the time. I absolutely. Think. Absolutely. For decades, he was. But yeah. I will say that, Jason, maybe one of the other reasons that the fashions all look similar is because, as you said, Adrian was such a huge superstar that if he's designing all the costumes, they all look like Adrian's fashions or whatever. And there isn't as much of a range in terms of style. It's really unfair to, you know, kind of say this, but I'm like thinking of like sex in the city where you have four, you know, well-off leads, right? You know, but they're kind of all clearly delineated in their look. And I know it's different decades and it's four versus 37 here, but, you know, I just needed some clarification on a lot of things. Yeah. I mean, again, you know, I think sex in the city is another one that if you were talking about puzzle pieces, of influences, course. this is a, this is a huge one. Yeah. Of course. Sex in the city also has what, you know, a hundred plus episodes or whatever to give you a fuller picture of those characters. And this movie has, even if you thought it was too long, only 130 minutes, but again, I don't know. To me, I felt like the acting and the personalities made up for the fact that maybe they, their, their fashion senses and hairstyles were similar. Yeah. All right. Well, I mean, you know, I don't, I don't mind the similar fashion styles. I just think, like I said, like, uh, I, we could have used some streamlining to help, you know, a little, like I said, less is more here. Uh, and, and as opposed to more is less. Right. Well, to me, it's more is more, but I mean, I wouldn't deny that this is a very like, lavish, over-the-top, excessive film. Again, the set design in this movie is fucking crazy. Like, Crystal Allen's bathroom? Come on. Oh, yeah, towards the end there. that that Yeah, mm-hmm. look, and Kukar, you know, like you were talking about that opening sequence and how he moves the camera and everything. Right. Yeah, you know, so, yeah, again, I you know, there's, um, if it's all dessert, then is anything sweet, Josh? <laughs> well, I think there's a lot of bitter in this film. I mean, that's the point, is that these these women go after each other. They experience heartbreak. I mean, all of them, not only Mary, but but Joan Fontaine's character and the Countess, as much as she is sort of ridiculous in her laments of l'amour, l'amour, she says this because she really feels it. So I, I, I didn't feel like it was all just surface, definitely. Although the surface stuff was great. Well, I think uh, we just are on opposite ends of the women's spectrum here. Josh. We are. We are indeed. I do want to mention because I know you probably want to wrap up and that's fair, but I, I have to get in what I think is 
maybe the best scene in this film, which is crazy because it involves none of the main stars and honestly, one of my favorite movie scenes ever, which is the scene between Mary's housekeeper and her cook as they are recounting to each other the argument that Mary and Stephen have when they decide to get divorced. And of course, we can't see Stephen on screen because the concept of the film is that we never see the male characters, but we have to convey what's going on between them. And so this maid character has been eavesdropping and she comes down and she's breathless and she's telling the cook all about what's going on. And these fantastic performances between these two characters who basically do nothing in the rest of the film. But it not only gives you this very clear sense of the argument that our main character has had without having Norma Shearer actually even appear, but in the way that they relate it to each other, it gives you a little sense of how these two characters who we don't really know anything about feel about marriage and about extramarital affairs and what's going on. And I just think that's a fantastic scene. Uh, that's wild to me that you say it's one of your favorite movie scenes ever. Um, I mean, I don't know. You know, I'd have to make a list, but it's it's one thing that has stuck in my mind like very prominently about this movie. I thought you might have brought up the, you know, the cowpoke, the ranch hand or someone who's always singing, you know, and giving that good country wisdom to the ladies. Or yeah, and her like. country wisdom includes that like her husband beats her and she just <laughs> goes with but, but they, like, but maybe, maybe I deserve it sometimes. Like They that, all do yeah. that. They all, this is what I mean. Like, you know, you want to talk about like the dichotomy really is not that much, you know, uh, Mary's mom, the same thing. You got to just, you know, boys will be boys, right? That's right. Well, I mean, so. Mary's mom also, and Mary even says this to her, is meant to be a representative of a previous generation. And Mary says like, hey, that's not how things are now. Even in 1939, that's not how we look at things. And I don't think it's meant to be that Mary comes around to her mother's point of view, but that she has a sort of integration of that with her own assertion of, of her autonomy within the relationship. Man, I'm glad you liked it, Josh. All right. Well, we'll 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 spare you. Dave, did you have anything you wanted to add about this? Uh, I mean, there there were some very funny moments like sprinkled throughout, and that's what kept me from, you know, really disliking it, <laughs> you know. So I definitely some good sense of humor here and there, as well as some good filmmaking. But yeah, I, I asked uh if we could get Gina on, but Dave said uh she's not allowed out right now. <laughs> yeah. she's, she's in the kitchen barefoot. <laughs> Damn right. Yeah, I think that's another yeah. thing is that, I mean, if I haven't made, like, this is a very funny movie. I laugh throughout the whole film. And and I feel like even if you're frustrated with the retrograde attitudes, the dialogue is so sharp and so funny that you can enjoy it that way. But obviously you can't. I, 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 yeah, I think I've given better examples of uh, of those type of movies with that. Yeah, I mean, those those are great examples too. You know, both, both Philadelphia Story and His Girl Friday, uh, you know, involved with people involved in this film obviously classics for a reason as well. So Jason, you want to rate this out of five uh, animal representations of women? Sure, I was going to say quickie divorces, but that's Sure, fine, five so. quickie divorces that take six weeks. <laughs> yeah, six-week quickies. Uh, it gets two from me, Josh. Two, two quickie divorces, and um, it, it was a slog, my friend. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm sorry that you feel this way. I, I give it a four out of five, four quickie divorces. I really enjoyed this movie every time I have seen it. I still really enjoy it. It's absolutely one of my favorites. It is number one on my 1939 top 10 list, and I'm going to leave it there. I hope we break it this season with something. Yeah, we'll Ooh. see. We'll see. So, uh, Dave, how would you rate this? I'm going two and a half. Uh, I, I didn't hate watching it. You know, I had a good time, but I didn't exactly love it or anything. All right. Well, I'll, I'll take your extra half star there, Dave. Thank you. Yeah, Dave, it. you'll have to <laughs> Dave, go through every episode we've ever done for someone's personal pick and tell me if that's yeah. the lowest. Get right on that, Dave. Yeah. Do some yeah. math too, yeah, which yeah. we're always well, great at. 
We'll, we'll let we'll let you guys know in the next uh, segment what Dave comes back with. Yeah, <laughs> we'll come back and talk about the legacy of the women. Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year. In this episode of our season on the films of 1939, we have been talking about my pick, The Women, which uh, I feel like we've, you know, torn it apart <laughs> plenty. Well, so, uh, hey, I, I'm going to get, yes, we have, but also like you defended your your stance. So all good, bro. Right. No, absolutely. I just mean like, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll move on now and talk about kind of where things went for it. We'll talk about the legacy of it because it was very popular. And so it was remade and remounted. I mean, the play itself was also very popular too. So between movies and plays, it's been, it's returned many times. There was a TV anthology episode version of it in 1955. And then in 1956, the musical remake called The Opposite Sex, which I'm kind of curious to see and is not very well regarded, but I didn't have a chance to watch it. But to me, the worst decision they make that is in none of these other versions is that uh, they include the male characters, which I feel like is the main concept of this. Well, yeah. So if you're going to do that, I mean, Jack Benny, the legendary comedian, did a sketch parody of the women with an all-male cast. And then, um, you know, at Was least it an all-male cast playing women or was it an all-male cast playing men? Well, that I have to find out, but it's from 1939. So... Also, so obviously this was, as you said, right there, big hit, ripe for parody. But yeah, that, that would be interesting to know. Because I mean, even if they were all playing women, that doesn't mean they can't, you know. No, I'm just be wondering, older. because I feel like there's got to be some kind of like drag queen version of this. This seems ripe for that, right? But maybe not on the radio in 1939. Oh, yeah, I would think the musical might have the uh, drag queens. Uh, yeah, but not in 1956 either. So maybe eventually. But but Josh, you did see the 2008 Diane English directorial debut starring Meg Ryan, Eva Mendez, Annette Bening, Jada Pinkett Smith, uh, Bette Midler, and Deborah Messon. I did, and it's very bad. And and I think I was, I you know, I didn't remember a lot about it other than that I didn't like it, but I did look over my review that I wrote when it came out. And I think my problem was that, like, it's hard to update. You know, if you want to retain what the story is about, as we said, it does have very retrograde sexist attitudes. It's hard to retain the structure of the story, but update it to 2008 values or whatever. And I think she sort of split the difference in a way that didn't work. But even worse than that is that it would just, it was not witty. It was not funny. The performances were flat and it just, it just didn't work, even though there's a lot of talented people in the cast. It is hard to do stuff like that. I think I told you like uh, back in, my uh hollywood minute days right you know uh one project that they they asked us if we could crack was mr mom like a remake of mr mom right yeah but the whole idea of like hey i'm a guy and i stay at home and take care of my kids like is totally like there's no there's nothing new or comedic or not normal about that right so like, right so it took me a year to figure out how to do that <laughs> and then by that time they had already uh, moved on well, I mean, I feel like that's fair because part of the issue too is that like, well, why are we remaking this then if we take away the central theme of it? And that's the same that goes for this film too, I think. Yes. And uh, Josh, none of us have seen the 1977 made for television, Rainer Werner Fassbender. I guess it was a movie, uh, Women in New York? Yeah, it's, a, it's a, a, a feature film, but it was made for German TV. And I'd be curious to see that too. I found it's not available for whatever reason in the US, even though Fassbinder is a huge filmmaker and I think most of his films are available. But uh, there was like, I found it on YouTube as a clearly like a rip from a VHS or something, but it didn't have any subtitles and I didn't have time to watch it anyway. But 
I'd be curious to see that. I'd be curious to see the musical from 1956, even if both of them maybe aren't great, just to see how this has been reinterpreted. Um, the play also remains popular. It was revived on Broadway in 1973 and in 2001. And the 2001 version has a pretty impressive, eclectic cast with Cynthia Nixon, speaking of Sex in the City, as Mary Haynes, Kristen Johnston as Sylvia Fowler, uh, Jennifer Tilly as Crystal Allen, Jennifer Coolidge as uh, as Edith. I mean, I would have, I, I don't know if it, you know, worked or whatever, but I would have been fascinated to see that. Yeah, I think the move here now is, you know, you know, we've talked about how expansive this is, right? Like, this this is a this is a series now you know let, that's what you do if you're going to remake this now you focus on them and tell those stories over time I I guess but I mean to me not just this but anything where that that lately where it's like oh this two hour movie is now a ten episode series that's always a bad idea hmm. well clearly we're on opposite sides of Reno on this one Josh we are we are indeed so uh, as you said George Cukor one of the biggest legends in Hollywood in terms of uh, directing. We mentioned the Philadelphia story, which I also love. Uh, Gaslight, another major classic. Adam's Rib, which is a, you know, Spencer Tracy, Catherine Hepburn, one of their famous collaborations. And uh, the 1954 version of A Star is Born with Judy Garland. And he won an Oscar for directing My Fair Lady and worked all the way until his final film in 1981. Yeah, he was he was making movies from 1930 to 1981. How cool is that? Yes. Um, yeah, and I mean, look, we didn't even mention like he's done the David Copperfield, he's done Romeo and Juliet. My Fair Lady's fun. I like that one. You know. So yeah, rain, I think I, I haven't seen it since high school. Mainly on the planes. <laughs> uh, right. Yeah. <laughs> so Kukor definitely definitely uh, uh, ignore all my bashing of this uh, film and watch some other Kukor movies, please. And I agree, like those ones that we mentioned um, are all really good. Um, Norma Shearer, I find fascinating. I have seen quite a few of her films now, but as I said, compared especially to to Joan Crawford and Rosalind Russell, she's not nearly as well known because she was a huge star yeah. in, the si in the silent era and in the 30s. She won an Oscar for this film that actually has a lot of similarities with the women called The Divorcee from 1930, which is also quite good. Um, but she retired from acting in 1942, this was one of her final films, and she was only 40 years old at that time and just gave it up and never acted again, shied away from publicity, and so she kind of faded away for a long time. Yeah, I think she also starred in Kukor's Romeo and Juliet, and she was the first five-time nominee for Best Actress. Right, and five-time nominee for Best Actress all before 1942. <laughs> right, it was like in a decade. She, uh, she uh, set the precedent for Meryl Streep. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But I think she's she's really good. And it's nice that people are rediscovering more of her stuff. I mean, partly, especially a lot of those like silent films and pre-code films weren't available for a long time and they've become more available now. And I definitely recommend The Divorcee is quite good. Um, with, yeah, but with you recommended movies. this movie. <laughs> right. Jason's not going to listen anymore <laughs> if I recommend a movie uh, from any era, I guess, maybe now. This is this has killed me. I don't know. Uh, that's OK. Of course I will. Jim. Of course. Um, I know. But uh we're going to talk about Joan Crawford. I'll let you cover the career aspect. But what I was really interested in, and I also would love to learn more about, is the way you know she pulled off her own publicity campaign to create her image as this. Uh, I mean, she was a flapper, right? You know, she was a uh, she was out at the parties, and she was known as you know always in the mix of whatever was interesting. And she created her own star in the 1920s. 
like she kind of calculated something, which nowadays, like I, whenever I see Taylor Swift on an NFL game, I hate that stuff. But reading about her doing it, I would like to learn more about that. Well, yeah, I mean, I think that's that's a lot of these, especially female stars, they had to take charge in, in a certain way. Otherwise, they were just uh, screwed over. I mean, and Joan Crawford was screwed over anyway, but um, certainly even more so if they weren't able to take charge of their own image or their own career decisions. And I mean, in the in the studio era, a lot of times women and men actors were not really able to take charge of their career decisions because studios just put them in whatever movies, as we've talked about in other episodes this season. So yeah, I haven't, I mean, she's another one like Norma Shearer. She was a big star in the silent era and I've never seen any Joan Crawford silent films. I've seen more later films. I think this might actually be the earliest Crawford film that I've seen, but of course she's known for, uh, you know, later in her career when she made campy stuff, like whatever happened to baby Jane and, and straight jacket and sudden fear, all of which are quite good. Straight jacket is great. She won an Oscar for Mildred Pierce in 1945, which is also absolutely fantastic. And so I'd be curious to see more of her early films, which the films themselves are not maybe as well known. And uh, as we mentioned in our episode on the Ice Follies of 1939, which she's also in, I did watch Mommy Dearest recently, which I feel like that has maybe faded. But for a long time, because of Mommy Dearest, she was known less for her acting in all these great films and more for being this sort of like, over-the-top, insane, diva-slash-abusive parent. And I think maybe that's faded enough that people are appreciating her acting ability more. Mm. Yeah, I, uh, I, I'll have to think on that, Josh. But I mean, the jazz singer, Grand Hotel, Johnny Guitar, and the Torch song, right? Like, and you mentioned Mildred Pierce. That was, like, considered a comeback vehicle for her. Right, right, which is only six years after this. But um, that is a great movie. So, so look, I, as I said, I think there's no one better than Rosalind Russell as far as this fast, like, screwball comedy, you know, kind of uh, we could give it as good as we get it style dialogue. And, you know, she was nominated for four Academy Awards and she uh, won a Tony. So, um, you know, His Girl Friday is my pick, but I have not seen, I mean, Gypsy Auntie, maybe, you know, there's plenty of stuff. So. Yeah, I mean, and both her and Joan Crawford kept on working all the way into the 1970s, whether it was in, you know, kind of B-movies like Joan Crawford or in television, but their careers spanned this huge amount of time. Um, I actually watched Anti-Mame recently uh, to possibly use for an article that I didn't end up including it in. But man, if you think this movie is too much, <laughs> Anti-Mame is just like two and a half hours of Rosalind Russell, like devouring the scenery. And it is exhausting. And it's something to see, but I'm not sure I really fully engaged with it. Yeah. Well, then I'm going to pass on that. I think we've probably mentioned Paulette Goddard when we have covered Chaplin because, you know, they were a romantic item and she was the leading lady in modern times and the great dictator. So, and she also married Burgess Meredith, who uh, I uh, love from his work in Grumpy Old Men. <laughs> yeah, she had she had quite the Hollywood romantic life. She married Charlie Chaplin. She married Burgess Meredith. And then she married Eric Mariah Remarque, or however you pronounce his name, who's the author of All Quiet on the Western Front. So really, uh, some major husbands there for Paulette Goddard. And once she married her third husband, basically retired, a, a, apart from a, a few occasional roles later, but by the late 50s, she was retired. So I feel like maybe in a way, like Norma Shearer, she's not as well remembered now, although people do remember her for those Chaplin movies. Right. I think so. Joan yeah. Fontaine, of course, we all know because of her feud with Olivia de Havilland, which uh, 
Was that was that a Ryan Murphy thing? Did he did he make a series about that or anything? No, he made the series about. I mean, going back to Joan Crawford, the the first season of Feud was about her and Betty Davis with Jessica Lange as uh, as Joan Crawford. But uh, Olivia de Havilland is like a supporting character in that. And I'm not. I can't remember if Joan Fontaine shows up. Of course, they were sisters, Joan Fontaine and Olivia de Havilland, and were famous for being, I think, the only pair of siblings ever to both win acting Oscars or something yeah. like that. Right. So Ben Affleck, you got some catching up to do, right? <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. And she's but also they, the uh, only person to ever win an Academy Award for acting in a Hitchcock film, at least the only actress. Yeah, she won for Suspicion, although I feel like she's better known for Rebecca, the Hitchcock film, which is right. great. And she's fantastic in that. But another person who had an insanely long career, she was acting until 1994 in some TV roles. So amazing how long these these actors work for some of them right and i mean you look through the rest because there's so many of them but it's all like they did a hundred movies in four years right we keep coming back to that theme that they just work constantly they did and i mean i think that's that's common for these actors in like the 30s and 40s but the fact that these that that continued maybe not at that pace but that they continued working for you know 50 years beyond that is just is amazing to me Josh, if it amazes you, then it's been all worth it for us. Thank you. I did want to mention Claire Booth or Claire Booth Luce, which was her married name. What a life this woman had. I mean, she was a hugely successful playwright, having written this uh, the play that this was based on, as well as a bunch of others. She was a novelist. She was a journalist. Later in her life, she was a member of Congress. She was the U.S. ambassador to Italy. Mm. Uh, she was a, a huge figure. It's interesting to me in like the conservative movement and the Republican Party later in her life. Um, but, you know, she was also known as a feminist pioneer. So she had this kind of duality to her that I think was really interesting. And also the fact that the perspective of this film, the message it, as we see it is like, for Mary and for women in general, perhaps to forgive husbands for straying and stay in their marriages. Uh, That's not something that she did. She was divorced and she married her second husband after he got divorced because he had an affair with her. Mm, She's living a double life there, Josh. Indeed. Um, Mm. Jane Murphy, the co-writer, also had an interesting life. Uh, She helped create the first major star that happened to be a dog, a dog named Strongheart. She wrote and produced films her strong heart while living with Lawrence Trimble, who I believe was a big uh, Hollywood exec or, or, produ- or director. I think that's that's the one thing that's going to get Dave's interest here. Yeah, th- that was like the last thing I expected you to say right there. <laughs> <laughs> I think, Dave, you need to go back and watch some of uh, Jane Murphy's dog movies and let we'll, us know we'll, those we'll are. We'll get an order. Yeah, I'm making a list right now. We'll get an order yeah. of uh, Pancakes Barbara and watch some strong heart movies. I yeah. look forward to that. So uh, do you want to say anything else about the legacy of this movie, Jason? Uh, no, Josh, I'm going to leave it with you and you can keep watching it. I will. I will watch it again. I almost when I was we were going to watch this, I, I almost bought it on Blu-ray or DVD because I figured I might as well own it, but it wouldn't have arrived in time for me to watch it for this podcast. But uh, I would absolutely watch this movie again. I really enjoy it. So that is The Women. And that is this episode of Awesome Movie Year. You can uh, tell us about our uh, adulterous affairs online mm-hmm. and on social media. Check out Josh's OnlyFans at uh, the, <laughs> the Women Fan Number One. No, we're at AwesomeMovieYear.com, Awesome Movie Year on Facebook and Instagram, uh, Awesome Movie Pod on uh, what I imagine Claire Booth would love, the X platform. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, and I'm Jason Harris, comedy or Jay Harris, comedy on all the things. Also, 
find me on Letterboxd, go for Jason. You can find some old things from me, including the first thing I think I ever wrote about this movie at joshbellhateseverything.com. I'm at Josh Bell Hates Everything on Facebook and at Signal Bleed on uh, X, as well as on Blue Sky and on Letterboxd. And if you watch this movie or any of the movies we talk about and you review them on Letterboxd, tag it Awesome Movie Year. We're still trying to hear from you. We'd love to hear from you and your thoughts on the movies that we talk about. And you can listen to our producer, David Rosen's awesome podcast, Piecing It Together. Check out Piecing It Together wherever you listen to podcasts and follow us on social media at PiecingPod. And Jason, what are we doing in our next episode? Josh, are you in the mood for love? Uh, I, are we talking about In the Mood for Love, the Wong Kar Wai film? No, but I would be happy to do that as well. But since it's around Valentine's Day, Josh, we're going with an all-time classic love affair film called Love Affair. That will actually be on Valentine's Day. So tune in on Valentine's Day for Love Affair. Hey, Josh, guess what? What? It's a better, it's a better movie than this one. <laughs> and thanks for listening to Awesome Movie Year. Thank you for listening to Awesome Movie Year. Make sure to follow Awesome Movie Year on Facebook, at Awesome Movie Pod on Twitter, and at Awesome Movie Year on Instagram. And if you like the show, review us and rate us with five stars on Apple Podcasts. An All Points West production, produced by David Rosen in Las Vegas.